Pushed into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin, lovely finish. Oh, yes, delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity, Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Hello everyone and welcome to Le Beaujeu, the official Liga Uber Eats English podcast. It's been another massive two weeks in the French top flight and after seven matches this term, just two points cover the top five and no, it's not PSG leading the way. In fact, it's all roses for AS Monaco at the top, all doom and gloom for Marseille and Lyon and their new mysteries. Sometimes is a good, sometimes, uh, well... We all know where you're going with that one, Gennaro. Coming up in today's show, we're going to wrap up all the action then from the past fortnight. We're going to travel back to when Lille were top of the pops, not in 2021, but a decade earlier when a certain Eden Azar led the dog to triumph. We'll also take a closer look at what's working on the Côte d'Azur and at OGC Nice more specifically this season. The derbies, there have been a lot in the last fortnight, and they just keep coming. We're going to look ahead to what it means when northern rivals Lens and Lille lock horns. We'll be previewing the Champions League, the Europa League, and Europa Conference League for our Ligue 1 clubs, telling you who has won a Marco Asensio shirt, and to tell you how you can go into the chance to win a Terra Moffi jersey with our Deja Who quiz There's all that and more to help me, your host, Robbie Thompson. I'm joined by CBS Viacom's European correspondent and French football specialist, Jonathan Johnson, Le Classique Pod's Baptiste Reynaud, and Ligue 1 commentator and preeminent historian, Andreas Evagora. Gentlemen, this afternoon, this morning, this evening, I'm skipping the hellos. We ran a little bit over last time. I'm trying to shave off a few seconds everywhere I can. So we're going to jump straight into the action, skip the pleasantries, but not the plugs. You can get involved in the conversation on X at League One underscore ENG. Follow us, like us, subscribe us, talk to your friends about us on all your podcast platforms. And of course, for all the official news coming out of France and all things Ligue 1, League1.com is your first port of call. So, gentlemen, where else to start when wrapping up round six and seven than with Le Classique? It was two weeks ago now. Perhaps uh, a lot has happened since then. Certainly there's been lots of changes at Olympic de Marseille. But, JJ, starting with you to have a look back at this one, we spent a lot of time previewing this massive clash. For you, did it live up to the expectations? Because we saw Paris Saint-Germain really click it was uh particularly in a first half a, a vibrant psg yeah absolutely i think vibrant is a is a good word for it uh you know it was vibrant sort of before the game uh in and around the stadium uh and and pretty vibrant uh after it as well obviously a couple of psg players uh you know went a little bit overboard in terms of their celebrations and find themselves in front of a disciplinary committee but i i'd say it was the first time that we've really seen what we could call a statement performance from a luis enrique psg side but also the first time that we could really see the extent to which sort of the bridges have been repaired a little bit between sort of psg's fans uh and the team 
Uh, obviously, following it up with a goalless draw against Clermont the following weekend was not ideal heading into the Champions League. But equally, uh, you know, it shows that it's very much a work in progress. And there were some very big positives to take out of that victory over Marseille. Kylian Mbappe coming off during the first half and PSG still scoring goals uh, and looking very good in attack and uh, an excellent uh, appearance from Bradley Barkler as well, who looks, uh, you know, like he could really add something to the PSG attack as well. So I think, uh, you know, certainly a lot of positives for PSG to take away from that big win uh, over their bitter rivals. But it was a strange build up to that one, given everything that was happening in Marseille. That's right. And there has been, well, the effects of that uh, Baptiste, what did happen exactly down there in Marseille? Because that's that's the first thing. What what an astonishing series of events! I think over the years in French football, we get accustomed to crazy things happening down in Marseille, but this is just taking it to a to a whole new level. I don't think anyone saw this coming. No, I mean Marseille equals chaos in in normal years, but you know over the last few weeks, it's been crazy and unusual. It all all kick started uh, from a meeting. I think on the Monday between Longoya and his team and the various uh, representatives of the uh, supporters groups, at which allegedly uh, basically the, di- the directing team of Marseille was threatened, uh, was told to expect war if they didn't get rid of Marcelino and his staff, and basically that the supporters groups expected better. Uh, Marcelino left the club straight after. There were a lot of rumors about Pablo Longoria uh, considering his position, he um, he basically uh, told the owner that he would suspend his activities for a, for a certain amount of time until he got more clarity. And he gave some interviews to La Provence where he was really visibly affected uh, at the pressure he'd been under, which seemed to go beyond the confines of um, of the pitch and, and the activities at the club. Uh, so Marcelino leaves. Longoria is decides to stay under pressure from the owner and apparently under good financial pressure from the owner. And uh, it leads to just a chaotic two weeks of Poncho Abardonado take, you know, taking back uh, the club to the Poncho, classic. back again. <laughs> and, uh, and then Gennaro Gattuso coming to the club. So, you know, if you wanted to add more uh, fuel to the fire, Gattuso seems like the right person, but it's... Um, it, it was it was odd simply because OM had seemed relatively structured under Longoria, despite the changes in managers. They there seemed to have been a common thread of him supporting his managers, and he'd finally find one that he truly wanted in Marcelino. And now we're sort of back at square one with a with a manager who, you know, obviously hasn't picked the the players and who doesn't necessarily seem to have been first choice. It it is a crazy crazy situation, Andreas. Just come to you on this one as well. Your feeling now, perhaps we've 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 heard what's happened in the recent past. We heard what happened there. Perhaps look, let's look forward a little bit because Gattuso hasn't had the hugest success as a as a coach yet in his career. We know that Marseille is this volatile footballing environment where sometimes when it all clicks with a passionate coach and the passionate supporters and the the hot weather and down on the viewport and perhaps a little bit of pastis mixed in there as well that you know suddenly poof amazing things can can happen what what do you see is going to happen down there well you're right and they they are kind of living life on the edge but unfortunately the, the, the catalyst for all this which was the fan group meeting that Batiste was talking about with 
with uh, led by uh, Rashid Zeral, who's quite a famous Marseille fan. Hello, Rashid, if if you're listening, that that hasn't gone away. Um, and you know, the last coach left because he felt he was being intimidated and was being threatened, which was denied by the the fan group. But that means there's a terrible issue of miscommunication. I mean, in any situation when one person feels feels in that situation, that there is something wrong. But to answer your question, moving forward, um, I think Gattuso is in a really difficult position because he's got to hit the ground running. He's going to bring in his own um, tactics. He's got to bring in his own technical staff. And that's the sort of stuff, Robert, you want to be doing in July and August. You don't want to be doing it in, in October because the clock is ticking. Marseille already in the bottom half. I mean, I know they're not in terms of points. They're not that far off the top. I think he's got a very tough role because the structure hasn't really changed that much. The players haven't changed that much. Uh, I was not that optimistic, to be honest, at the start of the season. I was a bit worried about Aubameyang, who still is not exactly firing on, on all cylinders. They had the perfect start against Monaco, but their defending was shockingly bad at Monaco. Uh, and that's going to be the first job for Gattuso, Robbie. Well, uh, obviously Gattuso's got a, got a tough task ahead of him, as does any coach. But JJ, if we're talking tough tasks, you know, Fabio Grosso, Gattuso's uh, compatriot, isn't in a in a in a field of roses, is he at the moment? Because look, they've Leon are still without a win. I remember saying at the start of the season on the very first podcast, what we're seeing at Leon at the moment is a little bit like what we've seen with the Saint Etiennes, the Bordeaux, these big clubs that everyone said can't go down, can't go down. And I was almost laughed out of my own podcast for suggesting that Leon could be could be in relegation relegation trouble. JJ, Leon have changed coach. Leon have five losses and two draws. Leon scored one penalty last month. It, that's that's the sum total of everything that they've managed to do. And is Fabio Grosso even the even the man to try and turn this around? I mean Leon are in all sorts of trouble. And that's not with the, without paying credit to Will Still and, and Rance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, not great time for either of the uh, Olympic sides uh, at this moment in time. I, I will counter your claims uh, and, and stick up for Baptiste, who I believe said that it could go one of two ways for Leon. It could go brilliantly or it could go completely disastrously. And obviously it's, it's going towards the latter at the moment. Uh, it seems like a, a, a game can't go by uh, for Leon at this moment in time without owner John Textor uh, putting out an official communique about how uh, everything's united behind the scenes trying to to turn around the team's bad form but it is it is very worrying um you know not on that topic of the only goal scored goal scored being a, a penalty uh, i think it was Taliso's penalty against psg i did see an amusing compilation on x twitter whatever it's called these days where it was uh, basically leon's <laughs> goal of the month competition where you had the the most beautiful goal the least beautiful goal and obviously it was just back to back uh, replays of the of the penalty but it is it is hugely worrying it's a massive challenge for for grosso uh, we said it at the time that he's going to need the experience that he's had at youth level to try and get the best out of the the misfiring products uh, at leon because they're not just the players that have been brought in from sort of outside the ol environment that are underperforming now. It's the, the the kids who've come through the academy as well and arguably perhaps believe that they've made it before they actually have. Uh, and I think sort of 
interestingly, uh, in the way that I'm saying that Grosso's uh, experience at youth level, certainly with Juventus, might uh, you know make things a bit easier for him. The fact he was a player at Lyon as well, obviously, should help in theory, but we debated that last time. Gattuso's experiences coming up to the Marseille job being in very difficult circumstances, I'm thinking you know, notably Valencia. He's often worked at clubs where there hasn't been much money to spend and he's got to make do with what he has in front of him. Uh, and I think, you know, both he and Grosso are going to have to be used to doing that because we know that Leon have big money uh, issues at the moment as well, big uh, concerns. Uh, and yeah, it's not been an ideal start to life for, for either of them. But uh, yeah, certainly a very worrying scenario for Leon at the moment. And, you know, at the end of the day, there are no clubs that are too big to, to go down. As you pointed out, Saint-Étienne, Bordeaux have shown to a lesser extent, Nancy as well, another historic French name, which fell further down, Sochaux as well. So, you know, you do have these clubs that, you know, can tumble down the ranks, uh, you know, when the when the rot sets in and the rot has absolutely set in for Lyon at the moment. Well, if if Lyon are a, are a, a negative surprise or perhaps uh, for, for Baptiste, it could have been negative or positive, of course, I guess. But one one surprise that's been a massive positive surprise so far this season they defeated Leon two weeks ago. They drew with Nice, scoreless in what was a, a big match for Nice. There was plenty of pressure on as well because Nice, it was their 10th anniversary of their stadium. It was a sellout crowd um, at the Allianz Riviera Stadium, which isn't always the case um, these days as well. And there was a there was a special context around the match for, for the Nice squad as well. But Baptiste, we have to talk about Brest. We had a, an email this week from Afrizal Luckman, who was the saying, what we've talked about at the start of the season, there always seems to be this surprise club, um, whether it was Strasbourg or Lens and every year. And this year, Brest, are this this side that have jumped out. And, I mean, Afrizal said that they were a, a sort of mid-table side that jumped up and is a, a big surprise at the start of the season. Brest are even a bigger surprise than that. Brest are not even a, a solid mid-table side. They're a side that survived the drop last year, and what they're achieving is just incredible. Let's, I mean, how long can this go on for? Yeah, million-dollar question, and, and we'll have to see, but it's in the continuity of the end of their season under Eric Roy last year. He, he came in, steadied the ship, made them harder to beat, and he's kept the same spine to the team, so... That's whether that's down to the fact they have limited financial means or by design. You know, he's got a settled squad, and I think that's that's what we've seen in the in the sites that have progressed over the last few years and have had successful seasons compared to their sizes. They've they've kept with their manager, they've kept with uh, the spine of their team, and and they do. You know, Brest do have some good players. You know, Jeremy Ledouaron is is very effective in his role. Uh, I think Pierre Lis Melou, uh, you know. Uh, previously of Norwich is actually a very underrated all-action central midfielder, and um, and in Marco Bizzo they've got a good goalkeeper. So again, the the you know there's reliability throughout you know the spine of the team, and uh, and and they and they're well prepared, and they and they don't operate in chaos like like other clubs. And I think you put all of that together, and it's a positive dynamic, which I hope for them will continue to go as the season goes along. Well, Brest have one defeat so far. They are sitting level on points with Monaco at the top of the standings. The side they drew scoreless with on the weekend, Nisa, one of two sides undefeated. Andreas, 
We have to talk about Lance, but we're going to do that and we're going to couch that later on in the podcast uh, regarding a certain match very close to your heart when they, when they take on Arsenal in, in the Champions League as well. I would like to talk to you about a, a big two weeks for Nantes and in particular the derby against Rennes on the weekend because it was a game that they end up losing 3-0. It was two late goals, a sending off a, a brain fade from Mustafa Mohamed, who completely lost it when his side was still, you know, at 1-1 right in the hunt for, for, the, for the Brittany derby. The week before, a spectacular 5-3 victory for Nantes as well. I mean, not many people were tipping Nantes to be a side and they're not out of the woods. They're sitting in 13th place, but it's a very respectable 13th place so far from a Nantes side who were undefeated in four games before the weekend's loss to Rennes. How have you seen not tracking and, and how did you see the derby and, and a Wren starting to hit their stride this season, undefeated as they are? Well, Wren, I definitely think from an attacking point of view, are one of the most entertaining teams in France. I'm not that surprised they'd be top five or top, top four or five. But again, back to the main part of the question, Nantes. I was actually a bit more uh, optimistic than, than than some of our other podcasts at the start of the season. Remember, they had a terrible season. The se- second half of the season, they just stayed up, Nantes, by the skin of their teeth, and they didn't start too well this time. But I do think they've got a few goals in them. Um, and they've kind of got this these sort of troopers, more experienced players at the back and in midfield, who I think can just about get them through the season. And it's sort of the opposite of of um, of Leon, if you like, because Leon don't have those kind of players. I remember Antonetti a few years ago saying that he'd rather have players who've been through a relegation battle, even if they've lost the relegation battle, rather than have players who've never experienced it because it's such a, a difficult thing to go through. Now, I don't want to talk too much about Leon, but they don't have those kind of players. Leon, the, the idea of Leon's players in a relegation struggle is new to them. That's not the case for Nantes. I think, I think last season would have hardened them a bit um, they had that awful French Cup final as well, which didn't hope. But I, I think they've got, I think they've got the players who can just about do it. Simon's is is, is a good player for me. You said Mohamed, he's starting to score some goals. Contan Merlin, I think, is a really underestimated player at left back. Um, they, they're not at the same level of, as Ren to me. I, I think Ren are always going to be the favourites for that match. But I, I would be really surprised if Nantes end up going down. I, I think they'll be just about okay. One of the other big talking points then out of week seven was a fantastic goal, goal of the week for Eden Zegrova for Lille um, against Luav, an absolutely stunning strike. So make sure you catch that one when you get the opportunity, cutting inside on the left foot and putting it in the top corner of the goal. There was another big talking point, and I mentioned it briefly there with um, OGC Nice. And their 22-year-old midfielder, Alexis Becker-Becker, who used to play for Caen, came through the ranks at Caen, headed to Locomotive Moscow. And uh, late last week, um, by all accounts, tried to commit suicide, or at least was intending to commit suicide. He was found and talked down from the Manion Viaduct in Nice. Um, Now, apparently, he has been suffering from depression, the club are across it, and of course, the entire Ligue 1 community um, came together in support of, of this young footballer. And I think more than anything, perhaps it was just a reminder to everyone once again that footballers are human beings as well. And yes, they earn a lot of money, and yes, they have superstar status, but footballers have problems like anybody else. 
Um, certainly, we all wish Alexis Becker Becker the very best and join the chorus of, 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 of voices from around the League Young community as well. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a, a little reminder of, of how fragile any human condition can be and that footballers, uh, even though we like to remove them from, from a normal, uh, normal life ecosystem, if you like, it's, it's not the case. Poor old uh, Alexis Becker-Becker, we hope, is on, the, is on the road back to recovery and we hope that we see him doing what he does best and what he loves best as well, which is playing football very, very soon. Well, there was general surprise at the start of the season when OGC Nice announced that they signed a young Italian coach, Francesco Farioli, to replace interim manager Didier Digger over the summer, barely known on the coaching scene and then only as an assistant to De Zerbi, who now finds himself in England with Brighton. Farioli has taken that faith placed in him by OGC Nice and run with it. Jonathan Johnson did a bit of digging to find out more about this young phenomenon of a coach and also what we can expect from Nice this season. Flying high in the Ligue 1 table early this season are OGC Nice, who underwent a number of changes this past summer after a ninth-place finish, which was disappointing by their standards. A goalless draw with Brest means that they remain unbeaten seven games into the campaign and within point of top spot. The Eaglets, as they are known, appointed talented young head coach Francesco Farioli to lead the team, and the results so far this term have been impressive. Nice's Italian tactician is just 34, and he's had a fascinating journey to Allianz Riviera, where he's now aiming to lead Ineos's flagship team back into European competition. Farioli actually started out as a goalkeeper at amateur level in his native Italy before ending his playing ambitions to pursue a degree in philosophy in Florence. During his studies, the Tuscan wrote a thesis titled Philosophy of the Game, the Aesthetics of Football and the Role of the Goalkeeper. He would later be picked up by Italian football's prestigious national training centre at Coverciano and earned a very young Farioli a near-perfect academic grade of 105 out of 110 the Barga native went into goalkeeper coaching and had a spell with Qatar's youth setup at the Aspire Academy while continuing to publish analytical pieces via his online blog. In 2017, Farioli teamed up with an upcoming Roberto Di Zerbi at Benevento and then again at Sassuolo where the visionary Italian's methods rubbed off on him. Di Zerbi developed a reputation during this time which eventually saw him land in the Premier League with Brighton and Hove Albion via Shakhtar Donetsk. Farioli took a different route into Europe's top five leagues with a stint as assistant coach in Turkey with Alanyaspor before making history at the age of just 31. Fellow Turkish Super League side Fatih Karagumruk appointed the Italian as the youngest head coach in Europe at the time. That spell was enough to convince Alanyaspor to bring Farioli back, but this time for the top job, which he did for 18 months before being offered the Nice gig. Arno Lusamba, who played for Nice before moving to Turkey, recently told French publication Sofoot that studying De Zerbi's Brighton tactics formed part of Farioli's methodology. Now in France, the philosophy graduate has set about instilling a new philosophy in his players on the French Riviera. Farioli is enjoying early success. Farioli is enjoying early success with a talented group of players younger than himself, yet captained by a player five years older than him, Brazilian veteran Danch. 
Jean-Claire Toddy were famed for his nine-second red card and just 23, yet has already played for Barcelona, Benfica and Schalke since leaving formative club Toulouse, and he's now a full France international. Kepren Turam, one of Lillian's two Italy-born footballing sons, is just 22 and already boasts over 100 appearances for Nice, having swapped from Côte d'Azur rivals Monaco, like teammate Sofiane Diop. Tere Moffi, prolific with Lorient and now Nice, is just 24 and one of a number of talented Nigerian attackers in Europe right now, having broken through in Belgium after flying under the radar in Lithuania. Yusuf Ndiashimi, like Farioli, emerged in Turkey with Malatyaspor and Basak Zahir. Now with Nice, the 24-year-old Burundi international is versatile across midfield and defence. Poland under-21 international and penalty hero Marsan Bulka dislodged Kasper Schmeichel as starting goalkeeper. The ex-PSG and Chelsea man had spent time on loan at Cartagena and Châteauroux before joining Nice. And they're just some of the main stars of Nice's early season form, but Farioli's impact has been clear on this team even just weeks into the season, considering that all of those players were present last campaign. Settled into a rough 4-3-3 formation, Nice earned back-to-back wins away at PSG and Monaco, who are also in Ligue 1's early top four, as well as a home win over Strasbourg, who are also in the top six. The goals that were missing from the three opening draws appeared with six across those three impressive wins, with Farioli grateful to his players for being attentive to his demands. It's what I've been asking of them from the outset, said the Italian recently, to pay attention to the small details. We have improved in a lot of certain areas of play, but we also have room for improvement in quite a few ways, such as finding solutions in a more fluid and dynamic way. Nice's fans who greeted their team at 4.30am after the win in Paris are certainly starting to enjoy life under Farioli's leadership and can finally dream of their first silverware since the 1997 Coupe de France. Andreas, Nice undefeated after seven games this season. It has been a remarkable start for, for Farioli. And, and probably, I mean, not a surprise insofar as we know how ambitious the Ineos project is and there have been changes behind the scenes at the club as well as, as, well as on the football pitch. How good are Nice this season? How far can they go? I've been very impressed with Nice this season. Uh, defensively, I think they've only conceded four goals so far. So that part of the pitch, they're doing really well. They were superb against PSG a couple of weeks back. And from a tactical point of view, um, what was interesting about Jonathan's report, Farioli, of course, he's young. What is he, th- 34? I- I've heard some older coaches say that that can be an advantage because, you know, it's easier for people to communicate with people of their own age and their own generation. And older coaches have said that they've had to change their messaging to younger players to make things shorter, more concise, more exciting in a way, because that's the kind of way younger players will, that's what they'll respond to. And secondly, 140 characters. Yeah, (laughs) or not quite that. But (laughs) the other thing is, you know, what coaches say, maybe this is just older coaches saying that younger players hold coaches in slightly less esteem than they might have 20 years ago. So, oh, there's this coach, he knows everything. Younger players, they want to learn. This is what they're saying, but they, they want different kind of messages and they, they want uh, maybe a, a, a different kind of way of being stimulated. So that might work for Fariola. You know, he's of that generation and he knows it. I, I've, I really do like the way Nice playing. Another player who goes a bit under the radar, Melvin Bard. I think he's a super left back. He's only 22, 23 and doesn't, you know, doesn't make any headlines, but I think he's a really solid player. 
We talked last time about Moffy, how dangerous he is, and and the other players, uh, the, you know, uh, that, that was talked about in that report by Jonathan. So I can certainly see Nice being top four, top five, and Farioli's done superbly well. You know, I mean, I don't really see any weaknesses so far. Um, and let's see how things kick on between now and the end of the year. But you know, top marks for Farioli so far. Baptiste, do you agree with with what Andreas has said? And and yes. A young coach, and Will Still obviously was amazing, Didier Digard at Nice as well before, who uh, perhaps after a, a generation communication problem with Christophe Galtier the season before that with a, with a few of the players at Nice or, or midway through that season, let's not forget, with, with Didier Digard. But um, what is this young generation of coaches coming through? And then, and then how do, well, I won't ask you how to explain Eric Waugh, at Brest and what he's doing, which is just kicking against the kicking against the theme. But but can uh, can this Nice side be a be a top five finisher in European football next season? They've certainly been very impressive. And what I like with Farioli is there's a clear structure to his to his team. They're well organized, but also there's real ambition. And I think the criticism aimed at Nice last year was that they were stale going forward. Despite the fact they had Moffi, they had one of the most underrated strikers in Gaetan Laborde, I think. Um, so they've added a bit of, of pace with Boga as well up top and, and just a bit of ambition. And, you know, I think they've, they've uh, put in a nice mix of experienced players and, and young, hungry players. So you see Morgan Sanson coming to the club is, is an example of somebody who knows Liga and is quite versatile. But he's right next to Kefren Turam, who's up and coming, and the impressive uh, Diayashime in, uh, in centre midfield. And, and similarly, in defence, uh, with obviously Dante, who's ever young, and and Todibo, so they've they've brought in a nice mix. I'm a bit concerned in terms of their depth, especially the defensively. And you know, if you Todibo has been impressive, but if you lose Dante and he's bound to slow down at some point, um, that that would be a big miss. And and just broad depth in throughout the squad, but certainly their starting eleven has clicked very well. Um, and why not aim for a top six? I think there's there's definitely space for it. Um, and and I think this is a theme that we're seeing, whether it's Dill or or even Awa, who's a bit uh, older, obviously as a manager, a bit more experienced. But it's they, I can't help but be impressed by how disciplined those sides are in a, in a fluid tactical way. There's 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 a template there that they're trying to follow uh, when they come into the game, but they're also flexible and and they have that nice mix of youth and experience. So impressive starts from all those clubs so far. I bet all those Nice fans listening to this podcast are holding their breath that Dante Donch doesn't uh, suffer that similar injury to what was it two seasons ago when, and, and it was such a massive blow to that Nice side, exactly what you're talking about. Here we are. He's two years older. We're two years further on and possibly, possibly a similar situation. JJ, very quickly, um, can Nice off the back of your 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 report and your investigation into into the club and how it's going, are they realistic top five finishers? Are we going to see Ineos finally regularly back in European competition after getting a taste for it last year? Yeah, it would be nice to to think that they are. I mean, the one thing that I would say is I don't think that much has changed at Nice. Really, I mean, you look at the the, the members of the starting eleven, and it's largely the team uh, you know that was on the field last season. It was just consistency was a massive uh, issue, and I, I completely agree with Baptiste in terms of the squad depth. I just don't think that depth is necessarily as important when you're not 
competing in Europe. So that could work to, to Nice's advantage. Um, you know, but I do think in terms of the quality on the pitch, the fact that they've managed to keep Todibo, Turam, uh, you know, I think those are two big, big pluses. Uh, obviously, Moffi, we got a taste of, of what he might offer Nice over the second half of last season, and he sort of hit the ground running again this campaign. Uh, you know, and they do have some sort of underrated uh, pieces who can chip in from time to time as well. The, the former Monaco man, Sofian Diop, uh, you know, has moments of real quality as well. So I I certainly think that Nice have the ability to get themselves back into Europe. And it, it would be nice to think that, you know, that would be enough for, for Ineos as well, despite their regular flirtations with going and acquiring whichever Premier League club might be on the market this week. But uh, uh, also, I just wanted to, to weigh in quickly on something related to Brest and Eric Wah. I remember a couple of years ago, I can't remember if it was last season or the season before, but it was under Michel Desacarien where... Brest had these crazy runs of either consecutive defeats or consecutive victories. I remember them going about six games on the bounce. Like, and then they suddenly lifted themselves up from the bottom of the table to near the top. And I think, you know, again, it comes back to this sort of uh, issue of consistency. There are some teams, I mean, generally speaking across League One, most squads have some very, very good base players, uh, you know, and some decent talents. That's why it's the League of Talents after all. But I, I think... When you have somebody with the experience that Eric Gua uh, brings, uh, you know, perhaps less hot-headed than Michel Desacarian can be at times or, you know, maybe less abrupt, uh, I think that has managed to, to sort of galvanize what is actually quite a solid, uh, you know, uh, core in that Brest team, despite losing some good players like Honora uh, Fevre as well. And that's why I think we're seeing now this quality from Brest. I don't think it'll necessarily last all season long, but I just yeah, record when we were sort of talking about them. They had these crazy runs at times of like six games on the bounce with uh, with wins. So very, very curious to see if both Nice and Brest can keep up the, the pace. But if I had to put my money on one of the two, uh, it would certainly be with Fariole in this. You're listening to Jonathan Johnson, Baptiste Reno, Andreas Evagora, and myself, Robbie Thompson, your one stop shop for all things French football, Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast. Well, it's time now for our latest installment of Ligue 1 Legends with Professor Andreas Evagora, who today is going to take us back to when Rudy Garcia. Now, there's a name not often associated with uh, unmitigated success in, in, the, in the French game. He's something of a, a, a controversial figure these days, Rudy Garcia. But a decade ago, more now, with a certain Lille side, he swept all before them, going all the way to the title with a swashbuckling, free-scoring, uh, absolutely free brand of attacking football. and. Um, Andreas is going to tell us where all of that began. Spring 1996, a chilly afternoon at the Avenue du Stade in rural Belgium. Little normally disturbs the tranquility of Bren-le-Comte, but today Pascal Delmoitiers is furious. He's looking at the new pitch laid down for the town's football team, Stade Brenoir. It's smooth and pristine, but suddenly there's an unwanted intruder on the turf. Delmoitiers, who's the club manager, curses to himself as he sees a small boy kicking a ball at the penalty area. That kid will ruin the grass before next week's match, he thinks to himself. He storms across the pitch to give the boy a piece of his mind. But as he approaches the penalty area, Delmoitiers stops. He can't believe what he's seeing. The boy can't be more than five years old, and he's striking the ball with a power and accuracy of a player three times his age. 
time after time, and he's doing it in bare feet. Del Martiers asks himself, who on earth is this kid? The frightened boy sees the manager approach, grabs the ball, leaps over a fence and into a house just a few metres away. Del Martiers has forgotten all about the state of the pitch. He follows the boy and rings the front doorbell. A surprised Thierry Azar opens the door, shakes the hand of Del Martiers, then turns around to his son. Eden, there's a man here who wants to talk to you. 11 years later, 2007, Del Martiers had no trouble persuading the young Eden to play for Stade Brenoir. Now, after a couple of years at regional club Tubiz, Azar is wanted around Europe. At 16, Azar already has everything. Two-footed, brilliant control, passing pace, dribbling ability, and that powerful shot developed on the pitches of Bren Lecomte. Lille aren't the favourites to sign Azar, but they do have an ace up their sleeve. The club is little more than one hour's drive from the Azar family home in French-speaking Bren Lecomte, and it helps that Azar is a Ligue 1 fan and hero worships Zinedine Zidane. Lille's academy director, Jean-Michel Vandamme, drives to Belgium. He persuades the Azar that the young Eden will easily settle at Lille and have the chance to play with the pros. The Azard family agree, and Lille pull off one of the transfer coups of the century, one that will steer them to a first league title in 57 years. Three years later, July 2010, Lille club owner Michel Seydoux, who is a famed film producer, has big plans for the so-called dog. He knows the northeast is a football-mad region, but Lille's heyday was in the post-war period when they were twice French champions and won the cup five times. Seydoux is planning a new stadium to replace the 19,000 Stade Lille Metropole, and the club have bought cheaply but wisely. Fans are warming to coach Rudy Garcia, whose attacking team has finished fifth and fourth in the last two seasons. Seydoux's aim for the new season is to stay in the top five. He's rejected a 12 million euro offer for Hazard from Turkish giants Fenerbahce and transfer requests from Jovino, who's courted by Liverpool, defender Adil Rami and midfielder Johan Kabay. But that means finances are tight. The only permanent arrival is misfiring forward Moussa So on a free transfer from Rennes. Some fans doubt So will be the man to make an impact. After all, he's only scored three goals in the previous season. Azar is another matter. Though predecessor Claude Puel hesitated to play the precocious youngster, Garcia knows the Belgian is capable of greatness. Azar debuted for Lille at 16 and a year later became the youngest ever scorer for the club. Garcia is keen to shield Azar and his team. At a July 2010 press conference, he insists that competing with the three favourites in Liga is unrealistic. If we come fourth again, that will be a good season, he tells reporters. Azar is asked about the campaign ahead. Yes, Marseille, Bordeaux and Lyon are the favourites, but why not try to finish above all three? The 21st of November 2010, Stade Lille Metropole. After a poor October that leaves Lille down in eighth, Les Dogs are top of the league for the first time in five years after a 2-1 win against Monaco. Azar is unplayable, skipping past opponents with ease and setting up goals for Ludovic Braniac and Pierre-Alain Fall. November 2010 would be a vital month. Two weeks later, Lille hosts Lorient. A massive dump of snow delays the game for 24 hours but fans who do brave freezing temperatures are rewarded with a classic. A crazy game, a real battle on a pitch that deteriorated in the second half. Jovino has one of his greatest games in a Lille shirt. So scores a hat-trick, already his second of the season. Lille are on a roll. They win 6-3, 
at Christmas. It could hardly be closer. Lille, a point clear of PSG, Rennes and Lyon with Marseille two further back. For Azar and co, there's all to play for. In early 2011, Garcia turned Lille into a winning machine. His key players are consistent and injury-free. During that memorable season, three featured in every league game. Azar, keeper Mikael Londreau and the midfield Dynamo and captain Rio Mavuba, a player who overcame childhood tragedy and trauma to reach the top. Remy, Kabay, So, Jovino and Mathieu Debouchy all missed just three league games or fewer that season. So stunned France with an outstanding campaign in front of goal. The Paris-born Senegal international banged in 25 league goals, the highest total in seven seasons. That season, everything clicked. So's haul was more than his four other seasons in Ligue 1 combined, a goal every 111 minutes. Ivorian winger Jovino also had the season of his life with 15 vital goals. After winning five matches out of six, Lille travelled to PSG on the 21st of May, knowing the title was theirs for the taking. On a famous night for Le Dog, a stunning strike from Abraniak put Garcia's men on their way. PSG striker Guillaume Wahol equalised just before the break, but then got sent off. So put Lille back ahead, and though PSG grabbed a late equaliser, a point enough to see Lille champions for the first time in 57 years. Lille would win the league by a big eight-point margin, and that wasn't all. Le Dog also beat PSG in the French Cup final to land the double. That successful campaign, a reward for several years of good planning and smart transfers. Azar, who would stay in the north of France for one more season, the X-Factor who turned Lille from contenders to champions. If there's one moment that sums up Azar's impact, it's his goal at Marseille in March. Collecting the ball with his back to goal, the Belgian spins and slams the ball past Steve Mondonda from 35 metres. A breathtaking goal, and that strike was recently voted Lille's goal of the century by fans. A super shot with power, accuracy and verve. A shot honed 15 years earlier on the unsung pitches of small-town Belgium. Well, I certainly remember... Um... Perhaps the biggest thing about this season for me was was Musa So just being in in such irrepressible form from a player as Andrea said scored more goals than he scored in his four previous seasons um, and always such a talented player and I think Gervinho was a talented player Eden Hazard was a talented player Adil Rami certainly was a was a talented footballer as well and there was something in in this Rudy Garcia way of coaching that we've seen in glimpses um, since then, 12 years ago, 13 years ago now, but that all these talented players were able to express themselves to the very best of their ability. That's, and obviously it sounds, it sounds simple when you, when you say it like that, that of course you need that to win, but that's when real magic can happen. Baptiste, what do you remember ab- about this Lille side that that won the double, actually. I remember them beating Paris Saint-Germain in the final of the Cup as well with a, a Ludo Abraniak free kick that, that caught out Gregory Coupe at the, at the Stade de France. I just remember them as being a young, unassuming, quite humble side um, that just got there faster than planned, in a way. I mean, Rudy Garcia had done really well at Le Mans, I think, pl- playing, mm-hmm. getting his teams to play attractive football despite you know, limited financial power and they had to be creative. And he applied the same method to uh, Lille into a club that was 
they had taken all the right steps to get there, effectively, in the way they planned under Claude Puel, uh, developing the Luchin Center, um, developing, you know, getting ready to develop the stadium. They'd been sensible. They'd been planning for the long term, and and that paid off. And I just want to, uh, you know, I lived in Lille uh, two years before that season for a year, and uh, and remember seeing, you know, a 16, 17-year-old Eden Hazard play, and that was, I mean, you could tell straight away just by his how bright he was on the ball, how brave he was on the ball, just how exciting a player he was. And the fact that they kept him, they convinced him to come and and they got him to play a lot with other players that had come through the ranks like Debussy and Yuan Kabai. Uh, I thought that it was just a, a res- it, it, it was a beautiful recipe. It was difficult not to like them as as title winners that year. Was that a was that a university year for you in Lille back then, Baptiste? That's right. Technically, technically my Erasmus year, despite being a French citizen. So, uh... <laughs> JJ, what about you? What are your memories of this of this Lille side back in 2011? Yeah, pretty similar to, to Baptiste. I mean, I think the one thing that I would add is there were some really underrated, uh, important elements in that side as well, although it was generally a young one. I remember Mikael Londro being really crucial, like his experience at that point of his career. And I think he was even player of the month at one point towards the end of that season when some of his performances really uh, you know, helped to, to make a difference for, for Lille. And I'm, I'm glad that Baptiste mentioned sort of the work done under Claude Puel as well, because I remember actually seeing... Aston Villa against Lille in the old Intertoto Cup, sort of at the beginning of when Lille was starting to become a bit of a force. Very tricky teams come up against even then, uh, you know. So it wasn't a surprise to sort of see them, you know, solidify uh, that that kind of reputation and build on it with some of those players that came through the the youth academy. So you know, very <laughs> sort of right at the beginning of my pretty much just when I decided to come back uh, to France and. And sort of cover what was going on in Ligan and, and everything that was about to happen with the PSG project. So, uh, you know, a lot of nostalgia for, for, for that period of, uh, of French football as well. And, uh, you know, they were just one of those teams where, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you guys hit the nail on the head where everything just seemed to click at the right time. You had that right amount of experience, but the right amount of youth as well. The blend was, was almost perfect. And obviously we've seen in years gone, uh, you know, more recent years that it's been harder for Lille to, to recreate that. I know they won the title in 2021, but, you know, you look at everything that happened, especially the the ill-fated Marcelo Bielsa stint and, uh, you know, it, it all could have come crumbling down and Lille could have been one of those clubs that we were talking about dwelling in Ligue 2, uh, you know, if Christophe Galtier had not come in and rescued them from their relegation battle. Andreas, just just quickly after you've been you've been thrilling us every episode this season with the taking us back down memory lane to this to this period and this period in particular was was such an amazing time for French football. I mean, obviously we look back with nostalgia now, and you look at the names of the players that made it and the names of the players that were were big. A player like Eden Hazard, who was just such a such a remarkable footballer, a real rare talent, but but what he went on to achieve with Belgium as well. But but this period from sort of Lyon in 2008, Bordeaux, Marseille, Lille, Montpellier, Paris Saint-Germain, over this period, every year was a new champion in French football. Did it need to be something like that? This no one giant juggernaut of a club to allow something like Lille to happen, uh, a Lille side that hadn't won the league for, for 50 years to happen? And can it happen again? Can we have another period like that where where anyone can really win Ligue 1? Well, Ligue 1, you've got to look at it in 
the same context as, as other big leagues in Europe. When money is concentrated into two or three or even one club, it's very hard for anyone to break through. And that was a period between about, let's say, pre-QSI that the clubs were relatively balanced in terms of their resources. I think at that stage, Leon had the biggest budget, but you're not talking about huge gaps uh, as there are now between PSG and the rest and sort of the second tier and then the second tier and then the likes of, of Brest, for instance, who are way back in terms of finances. It was an, it, there were some great French players, you know, the generation, uh, that generation born, you know, of about 1990, late 80s coming through. Um, it was, I think it was a very interesting, interesting time for Ligue 1. We had, as I think Baptiste just says on the chat, five different winners in five different years. I find that very difficult to see that happening in Liga or any big league because the titles attract the money, the money attracts the players, and it's this this sort of vicious circle, if you want to call it that, to put it in a negative way. So I don't think we'll see that in France or really in any other league where you get five different winners in, in five years. And, and, and Lille, you know, they lost... I don't think they were ever going to keep a generational talent in Eden Nazar, but even the other players we talked about, most of them left fairly quickly, didn't they? And and Lille were were kind of not even top two, top three were within a few years. And so did so did the coach Rudy Garcia as well. And that that he left a well, not a he he left he left a club that wasn't ready to go on with it either. I mean, it's never easy when you lose so many quality players. But it's been a criticism of Rudy Garcia levelled at him. Um, since then at clubs that he's left as well. Join in the conversation at League One underscore ENG for English on Twitter slash X. And of course, like and subscribe to the podcast on all your favourite podcast platforms. Well, it's time for our third feature in today's episode now with our undercover French Englishman, so very well spoken, certainly better spoken English than than myself, Baptiste Reynaud. And uh, this afternoon, this evening, this morning, depending on where you are and where you're listening from, he's taking a look at another huge match on the French Ligue 1 calendar. We've been deprived of it over the last, well, probably in the 21st century, more often than not. But this is a, a huge clash that, that developed at the back end of last the last century. And we've had some some big clashes over the years. Now that they're both back in the top flight and looking to do well, two ambitious clubs, it's, it's back to that passionate affair. It always has been. I am, of course, talking about the Derby du Nord, Lille versus Lens. It's coming up in round eight. And Baptiste has more on the match that stops the north of France. The Derby du Nord between the Sire of the Racing Club de Lens and the Dog of Lille. It's a truly regional derby rather than national rivalry. Only 36 kilometers separates the two towns. And both teams have rarely been near the top of the table at the same time or have truly been in the French people's imaginations as compared to the likes of Marseille, Saint-Étienne, Lyon or PSG, which form some of the biggest rivalries in the country. Traditionally, Lens have always been seen as the more working class team with real grassroots and a public representative of the whole region, whilst Lille has always been seen as more bourgeois due to its status to the main big city of the north. Lens remains, even to this day, rather underappreciated as a town. It's a small town, about 32,000 in the city itself. 
whilst Lille is much bigger with about 250,000 people and attracts more investment. And thanks to Eurostar has been a lot more visible with its links to the UK and Belgium and its status as a big university town. But despite that rivalry, and no matter what the local fans might say, there's actually a lot more that unites those two clubs than actually divides them. So first, the fact that the Nord, the region they're in, and the Sties, the local people uh, with the Picardy language, have traditionally been derided by the rest of the France because of their status as mining country, which will be, um, which people will probably see close links to certain areas of the UK, actually. Um, before the arrival of the Eurostar and a famous film in France called Bienvenue chez les Ch'tis, which portrayed the Ch'tis as, as they are loving, welcoming people, the Nord was always seen as slightly uh, backwards, uneducated, and not worth worth its time. That obviously has changed since, and the fact that they have now two thriving clubs is a huge boost to the region and a huge boost to both clubs. Secondly, the two clubs have had their ups and downs over the years. Lens spent most of the 2010s in Ligue 2 and financial disarray. And whilst Lille have spent the last 20 years uh, in Ligue 1, they have also had a few brushes with relegation and difficult financial times. Having said that, what is great at the moment about the derby is that both clubs are finally back into the ascendancy at the same time. Lille were obviously champions a couple of years ago uh, under Christophe Galtier, and after a difficult season, they seem to be uh, back with Paolo Fonseca at the helm since the start of last year, playing exciting football. And obviously, Lens, since their return to Liga, have been nothing short of sensational finishing second last year, playing attractive football and being back in the Champions League. But having said that, it's uncertain times at the moment, at the start of the season, for both Lens and Lille. Lens have suffered a number of defeats and recorded their first win only on match day six, after worrying 3-0 defeats versus Monaco and one against Lens, conceding too many goals as well against the likes of PSG, when that was the bedrock of their squad and their success last season. For Lille, it feels a bit as though they've stagnated. They suffered a heavy day defeat away to Lorient, and they recently lost their long-term invincibility at home to Reims, who are themselves very much a thriving team. Whilst they've been unconvincing in their wins and draws, and there have been a lot of rumours about Paolo Fonseca, one of their real assets, being really dissatisfied at the club for various reasons. So there's a lot to look forward to in this derby, one which is... Obviously, as I said, a regional derby and for which fans have tended to be close and good-hearted rather than uh, tribal and antagonistic. It's a good-hearted derby that will see a lot of interesting players coming through this year and experiencing their first derby du Nord. So the likes of Lenny Yoro, who is a 17-year-old centre-back, really promising uh, for Lille and starting to make headways into the team, is one to look out for. And obviously for Lance, who seem to be gaining form a little bit. We'll look out for Eli Wahi, whose signing at the summer was a real, real statement of intent. Probably the biggest statement of intent from a French club uh, over the last few years as they head into the Champions League and try to regain their form. On top of that, two great uh, up-and-coming managers, Franquez and Paolo Fonseca, both want their teams to play positive football, are tactically flexible, and have had a lot of success trying to bring through players and and devise a real system and a real identity to their to their sides so 
one of the most passionate derbies, one of the friendliest derbies, probably if you're coming as a neutral and certainly want to be excited about. JJ, we often bemoan the fact that in, that in France we don't have this notion or an English notion of a derby or perhaps a, a Buenos Aires notion of a derby where I think you've got 20 professional football clubs in one city. In France, it's generally one club per city. This is a classic example. I think Baptiste said it at the, at the start of his, his report there that it's just a number of kilometres that separate Lens and Lille. Is this as close to a derby as you can get, or a real one in France? I mean, there's Saint-Étienne, there's, there's and, and Lyon, there's, there's Nice-Monaco, there's Toulouse-Bordeaux. But again, we're talking more and more kilometres. And it's, it's the same story here in the north. But why are these considered derbies then? Is it because the regions are so strong, the identity is so strong? If they're not cross-town rivals, they're cross-region, cross-department rivals? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you still have that uh, rivalry. In fact, it's interesting. We touched on uh, Nantes earlier, but it was sort of a similar story with Nantes and Rennes. And you had uh, Matisse Ablin, who who sort of crossed the divide just for a loan spell with Nantes. And then you have the the, the passionate Rennes fans holding up the banner saying it's uh, it's basically a one-way ticket out of the club. There won't be any sort of return after his loan spell, which perhaps was going a little overboard, but also at the same time, it, you know, it speaks to the, the the passion that some of these fixtures can generate. And obviously we've gone into depth many a time uh, on this podcast about how frustrating it is to not be able to have the, the, the color and atmosphere that, you know, away fans can bring to some of these big games. Uh, I, I think uh, that away fans have been banned for this one again, but I think what really helps to make this one feel like a, a, a real true derby sort of, especially in the sense of, of sort of like comparing it to English football derbies is the atmosphere that gets generated, especially when you play at Lens, which is a very English style stadium with, you know, arguably one of the best, if not the best uh, atmosphere in France, certainly when it comes to, you know, to, to one of these big games. And it, it just it, it's one of those matches that I think took on importance as well over a number of years when Lens, uh, you know, were representing uh, French football on the continental stage. Lille were really coming into their own as well and becoming a bit of a domestic force. Uh, and it's yeah, it's, you know, two passionate sets of fans uh, and it always, uh, you know, provides, uh, you know, maximum entertainment uh, you know and quite often uh, you know a, a nice little bit of needle as well which you know I feel like you know French football almost needs a bit more of not less uh, you know in, in terms of how uh, these games are policed. Andreas where would you classify the Derby du Nord in the in the in the ranking of of French derbies and, and French rivalries I mean it's it's a pretty passionate one we have seen some scenes in the last few years of of, of the fans taking it perhaps beyond the the limits necessarily but I mean I like JJ I love there being a little bit of needle I love the fact that the home fan or the away fans are there at the training ground when the bus leaves to travel to the game with the flares and on the overpasses as the 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 away teams arriving in the next day and they're all the signs you know this is this is not going to go well for you if I can put that very politely (laughs) (laughs) we do not wish you the very best of luck today that, those sort of messages that are written in more colloquial, colourful, colourful French. But Andreas, where where do you rank rank this one? Oh, I think it's high because as a region, I think it's one of the real hotbeds of France. I mean, obviously, a place like you know, there are cities where football is is has a hugely passionate following. But 
I've, I spent a bit of time up there. And really, for me, that part of France is all kind of really football crazy. We should say a lot of players uh, do come from that part of the world. If you look at uh, French internationals, a lot of top players come from that part of the world. Um, and it is just a part of the world where they love their football. Cynics might say because it's not the most beautiful part of France, but I would disagree with that. There's a lot of ni- nice parts of France up there. And without getting too deeply into it, this idea of the regional identity and regions asserting themselves, it's very important. It's, it's one of the big issues in France at the moment, Robbie, um, because France is a very centralised country. And at the moment, there's a big debate in French politics about um, uh, uh, regional uh, identities and cultures uh, being, being recognised more. So that might have something to do with it. But I, I do think it's it's a it's a, a hotbed of French football in terms of geography. It is the closest. In France, people do sort of call everything a derby. I've heard Lyon against Marseille called a derby. And you know, it, it's just a, a language thing. It's, it, 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 whereas, you know, from those from an English point of view, it is a derby of a, of a specific place. Uh, it's a big, big derby. And for once, both teams are doing fairly well. So it's really one to look forward to. All right, let's keep moving on. Unless uh, Baptiste, do you have anything more to add to to what we can expect from the from the Derby du Nord in, in a week's time? Uh, as just echoing what people have said, just a really passionate um, Derby, but also one that I think you know really reflects the values of the region. You know, it's, the people are very humble there. They 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 really support their football club because it means. Um, because it means a lot to them. It's very close to their heart. Whilst, you know, in other regions, you know, it's more around hot-headedness, I would put it, you know, in uh, <laughs> certainly in the South, if you were to jump into maybe French cliches, but it's, you know, this is as close as you're going to get to British Derby, I think, in, in Liga. The, around the South, it would be more Italian style of attitude, I would say, in the stands. And, and Brittany has its own... Um, has its own culture as well, but is, you know, it, it doesn't have that same closeness and proximity with Lee as, as the Derby du Nord has. So it's certainly a very unique one and a very exciting one. And I'm glad both teams are, are, are doing well at the same time because it's also a region that needs a lot of spotlight on it um, and deserves more spotlight on it. It's the beer derby of France. That's basically what you're saying. You can have all, all, all different regions and cider in the West and down South, maybe a bit of, you know, Campari or <laughs> all your aperitifs, but, but the, the Derby du Nord is the beer derby of France. And, um, and I agree with you, Baptiste, if, if that is indeed what you were trying to say, because I think it is as well. <laughs> you're listening to Baptiste Reynaud and Jonathan Johnson and Andreas Evagora talking all things French football. Time to move on because we've got a big week of continental football coming up. And this is the moment I was alluding to earlier because Lens take on Arsenal in the Champions League this week. It's a a fixture very close to the heart of our very own Andreas Evagora, um, who remembers very well a Lens side getting up by goal to nil. Um, back in 1998 as, as French champions. I think the return fixture was a 1-1 draw as well in, in the north of France. Um, Andreas, that, that's the history between these, these two sides. <laughs> but um, after Arsenal uh, swept aside PSV 4-0 in their opening match, Lens came from behind to draw 1-1 with Seville, a Fulgini free kick in Group B. Can Lens really mix it? with the Gunners this week? 
I, I'm reaching back into my memory. I did actually go to that, I'm showing my age, that Lens um, Arsenal match. I was a mere youngster, of course, in 98, but it was 1-1. <laughs> uh, and Lens got a, a late equaliser, as I remember. And then became the mm-hmm. first team to um, win at Wembley, the first French team to win at Wembley. They beat Arsenal because Arsenal were playing at Wembley um, back then. Um, to the present, um, Lens have picked up, which is uh, good for them. I... I that, that match was a 1-1. I wouldn't be that surprised if it's another 1-1 next week. Arsenal away defensively are very strong. They've played six hours of football away from North London without conceding a goal. They are a little bit vulnerable to a direct diagonal quick ball, uh, which might open things up for Sotoka. Uh, maybe Eliwahi might have a good night. Um, I think it'll be I think it'll be fairly close. Uh, there'll be a very good atmosphere there. And Lons will certainly go into that match much more confident than they were a couple of weeks ago. Though we should say, I think they played well at Sevilla. You know, that was a really good performance for them to get a 1-1 draw. Um, so I think it'll be close. I think it'll be a fairly close group. And I won't be surprised if it's another 1-1 draw. Well, they are coming off back-to-back wins. Their first wins of the season as well for Lens after those wins over Toulouse and Strasbourg in the league. JJ, PSG are on the road to Newcastle. Massive clash of, of modern football, if you like. PSG, who who are still stuttering a little bit. We've just, there are rumours out at the moment about Kylian Mbappe suggesting that he's not 100% fit because of all his do I stay, do I go um, pre-season and a, and a lack of going on the pre-season tour with the team, of, of not, not doing enough to be or not being with the first team squad for pre-season training. Against Clermont, I mean... And again, I used to defend PSG for this all the time. I mean, it it was scoreless, but PSG could easily have won 4-0 as well. There were some fantastic saves, some some profligate finishing. I don't think it was a concerning result so much for PSG, but but Newcastle will be a, a, a different kettle of fish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to point out uh, as well that PSG once again coming up against one of their own products who who kept them out on the day at Clermont with uh, Maury Dior the uh, the Clermont goalkeeper it's a recurring theme for for PSG but I, I don't think we should read too much sort of into into the goalless draw I mean we know that PSG are a work in progress under Luis Enrique uh they do obviously need to work on their finishing a little bit. And I was surprised that Gonzalo Ramos didn't get the nod to start in Clermont. Equally surprised that Kylian Mbappe was sort of risked, so to speak, uh, in that game, given that he picked up an ankle injury uh, in uh, Le Classique against Marseille. But also at the same time, I mean, Luis Enrique wants to put his strongest team out wherever possible, uh, you know, in order to, to try and build up this uh, this cohesion. Uh, you know, a Newcastle away is going to be a big test of it because we've been talking about what constitutes a, a rivalry, a derby uh, in a domestic sense in France. I mean, this is kind of a little bit of a, a state-owned rivalry between a, a, a club that enjoys Saudi backing in Newcastle and, uh, you know, a Qatari-owned club in, uh, in PSG. So this is one where... You know, the narrative is almost going to overshadow anything that happens on the field. But in terms of PSG delivering a performance, I think we've already seen from some of the games this season that when it's the bigger teams that they're coming up against, with all due respect to, to the likes of Clermont, uh, you know, when they're coming up against the likes of Lens, Lyon, uh, Marseille, they really can turn it on. And, uh, you know, I think that PSG will put in a strong performance in Newcastle. That's Ligue 1's two Champions League participants this season. Moving on to the Europa League, Batiste 
Wren, 3-1 winners over Nantes, 3-0 winners over Maccabi Haifa in their first game in a group that also includes Panathinaikos, the Greek side, and Villarreal, their opponents this week in Group F. Villarreal lost their opening game to Panathinaikos as well. A win here for Wren um, would be a huge step to going through to the next round. Not only France need it, Wren need it as well because Wren are a, an ambitious club that have been knocking on sort of the European door for a while without ever living up. Or they, they need that result. They need that campaign that puts them on the map, don't they? Very much so. They've been, they've been in Europe the last few seasons and they've assembled a squad that has depth and that has a lot of talent going forward. Uh, I think, as you said, they're an ambitious club. They want to make their mark on the European stage. And when I look at that group and their performance in the first game, I think there's, there's definitely space for them uh, to do so and to impose themselves on the group. I mean, this isn't a Villarreal that we've known necessarily over the last few years. I think it's been a bit more chaotic for them this season. And whilst Panathinaikos were impressive in beating Marseille um, on the Champions League qualifications that they didn't reach in the end, you know, that was as much to do with Marseille's shortcomings as, as Panathinaikos, um, you know, successful endeavours. So I don't think they'll be looking at that group uh you know, feeling like the underdog. And I think it's the perfect opportunity to make a statement. And I think, you know, away at Villarreal is, is one place to do so. And I'm quietly confident for them. Staying in the Europa League, JJ, in Group B, we saw Pancho Bardonado's Marseille turn on the style against Ajax. It was a, a remarkable match of football. Finished 3-3 in the end in their opening game. It's going to be another tough clash for them. We've spoken about Marseille. We've spoken about Gennaro Gattuso, their new coach. What can we expect from them against Brighton? I mean, it's it's early days in the Gattuso coaching regime reign, but uh, can we honestly expect them? I mean, Brighton had a, uh, have had up and down results in the last few days as well. What do we, uh, what do we expect from this? Yeah, really, uh, really fascinating this one. Obviously, a battle between two Italian managers. Uh, I was delighted over the weekend, obviously, with my beloved Aston Villa winning 6-1 six, uh, six against uh, Brighton at home. Uh, I don't expect Marseille to, to repeat the feat, but, um, it, you know, I think Marseille... You know, should be looking at this at the moment, looking, you know, to, to hopefully pounce on a on a vulnerable Brighton side. I think they've lost back to back games because they lost in the in the EFL Cup as well. So there's no better time to come up against the Seagulls uh, at this moment in time. And it's also possibly a good moment for for Gattuso to really sample uh, you know, the the atmosphere of Stade Velodrome on a on a European night, which I think is gonna factor into how his spell uh, in charge of the the team goes. Obviously not an easy task and Brighton will want to, to bounce back. But, you know, Marseille, I think, will really, you know, fancy their chances after an unexpectedly prolific uh, outing against Ajax. Although if you look at sort of the demise of Ajax over the last 12 months or so, maybe it wasn't too surprising. And actually, I think this is an underrated subplot in all of the, the French team's involvement in Europe at the moment. You've got this battle between the French sides and the Dutch sides. And obviously that factors into Arsenal uh, playing against uh, Lens uh, this week as well. So it's uh, it's certainly going to be fascinating to see how Marseille's um, Europa League uh, outing goes because really, uh, you know, certainly in terms of the coefficient, um, you know, we could really do with Marseille picking up some points for, for the French clubs. Andreas, in, our, in France's and Ligue 1's final Europa League 
participant, Toulouse. They're taking on Austrian side Lask. Um, they drew 1-1 with Union Saint-Gilloise in their, their opening match. Liverpool are the big side in this group. Is is everyone else playing for second place? And 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 Toulouse, how have you seen them travelling? They got a good win on the weekend as well, 3-0 over Metz. So that was a, a fantastic result for, for this young Toulouse side and their, their eclectic bunch of nationalities. Yeah, that was the perfect way to go into uh, this Europa League match, that, that win against against Mets. I think, yeah, I mean, Liverpool are going to are gonna go through. Um, no disrespect to the others, but t- to lose, they were a little bit unlucky. They they went 1-0 up uh, on, on the road in Belgium, ended up with a 1-1 draw. Uh, Lasker not doing particularly well in the Austrian League, 1-4, drawn three, lost two. It, it, I hate to use that must-win phrase, but I, I think it's one of those games you, you just have to win at home. Uh, there, there's a battle between the three other teams. Liverpool are going to go through a good start for Toulouse, but they're going to need to win uh, against Lask on Thursday. I, I think they've got a, a, a even without much European experience. I think they've got a really good chance of of winning that and putting them in uh, a good position ahead of the double header against Liverpool. There's one more team, uh, Baptiste, involved in European com- competition. It's Lille, and I'm not going to ask you to pronounce who they're playing, <laughs> which I was tempted to do, but I have since seen that everyone just calls them Key. So we'll just go with that. Lille versus Key, who lost their opening game to Sloven Bratislava, Olympia Slovenia, the other team in, the, in this group that Lille beat 2-0 in the first game. I mean, it's a group that Lille should be winning every day of the week, isn't it? On paper, yes, but you know, Lille struggled against Rijeka in the qualifying stages, um, and this key side was the success story of the summer when they uh, just for making it uh, to this, you know, to this tournament. But also in the in the wins they gathered along the way, I think they beat Molde, um, they beat Ferencváros, you know. So not necessarily the biggest sides in the world either, but recognizable names on the uh, on the continent of teams you wouldn't want to go away to um so you know yes on uh, you know the ferries team i think they're semi-professionals or or they've only just become professionals but they're certainly on a good run and they gave bratislava a good game uh in their opening game so uh, i think lille should learn from its mistakes of the past against rieka and and really uh not um you know take it for granted but certainly on paper even with the limited depth that Lille do have at the club that they should be too good for, for Key. Okay, well, now it's time for the world's most difficult and amazing French football quiz in English, that is. Deja Who, before we uh, reveal the question for the next month and your chance to win a Terra Moffi jersey, we have a September jersey to give away, and it's none other than a Paris Saint-Germain jersey of Marco Asensio. So before we announce the lucky winner of that prize, here are the answers that you had to get right in September. First up, I won't read out the question, but the answer was Jorge Buruchaga, the Argentinian forward who scored the winning goal against West Germany at the World Cup in Mexico in 1986. He played for Nantes for seven years, um, and his last ever match in France was actually with Valenciennes. And it was, uh, I asked why was it such an important match and his last ever match? Well, it was, of course, the match where he was 
very seriously and heavily involved in the match-fixing scandal, which ended up costing Marseille their place in the top flight, the 1993 um, Ligue 1 title as well. Um, they actually played Valenciennes three days before the final of the Champions League. They were hoping to have the Ligue 1 title all wrapped up so that they could go and play in the Champions League final, um, which is exactly what they did. It was a 1-0 victory. There are amazing footage of the game at halftime between Marseille and Valenciennes where you can see that this whole uh, incredibly controversial story is coming out and the referees are aware of what's being said and there are officials from, from, from Valenciennes there and players talking and you have Didier Deschamps, who's there, the captain of Marseille, um, talking to the referees about what's being said and that the game may be fixed, the fix is in on the game. And it's, uh, it's remarkable. Go and check it out. Crazy, crazy footage from, from way back when. One of the uh, amazing stories of French football will get Andreas to look into that one day, <laughs> perhaps as well in, in the history segment. The second answer was Johan Cabaye. And we've spoken a lot about Lille that won the league in 2011. Johan Cabaye was another member of that squad. He was a youngster whose dad came through the ranks at Lens. He came through the ranks at Lille um, before going on to play for Newcastle, Crystal Palace, Saint-Étienne. He hung up the boots just two years ago after one final go at Saint-Étienne. I seem to remember he scored against PSG in, uh, in, in the game as well against, against Paris Saint-Germain. He's now technical coach at the Paris Saint-Germain Youth Academy. He's, he was, I think, academy director for a little while, and now he's uh, in one of the secondary uh, directing roles there. First of all, congratulations for the Burushaga and Johan Kabai answers of the month of September. Go to Simon Klopfenstein, uh, who has won that Marco Asensio jersey. So congratulations, Simon. Get in touch on league1podcast at gmail.com and we will send that jersey out to you. So now for this week's question. Um, you have to send your answers, if you think you know who it is, to league1podcast at gmail.com to go into the running to win an OGC Nice jersey with Terra Moffi's name on the back. Get your thinking caps on and listen closely. Who am I? I made my debut for my hometown club at just 14 years of age, moving overseas at 16. At 17, I won the Golden Boot as top scorer and lifted the cup. After another international move and a World Cup in between, I finally arrived in France at the ripe old age of 20. I burst onto the scene in Ligue 1 with my first of four French clubs, starring in, but not winning, the Champions League in my first season. I scored against Bayern Munich and AC Milan. After another 16 years of my career in Europe and beyond, I won the Ligue 1 title and the English FA Cup before finally hanging up my boots after one last stint in the French 4th Division, or National 2. Who am I and where am I now? So, if you have it, or you think you might have it, send your answers in to League 1 podcast at gmail.com and you can go into the running for the OGC Nice 
Terram Moffy jersey. Okay, gentlemen, we are almost done on this latest episode of Le Beau Jeu, the official League Am podcast. Time to look ahead to round eight of what's coming up. There are some big matches, obviously. We've chatted already about the Derby du Nord, where uh, I will, at the end of this little segment, be asking for a winner of that one. But there are some other big matches coming up. Friday night, Strasbourg versus Nantes. Should be a great atmosphere there. On Saturday, Metz versus Nice. Metz need to arrest the slide under Laszlo Bologna, and Nice are looking to defend their undefeated record. Saturday night, Reims versus Monaco on Sunday. Early kickoff uh, or late Saturday night kickoff, Sunday night kickoff if you're uh, here in Australia. Olympic Marseille versus Le Havre. Brest take on Toulouse. Lyon against Lorient. Montpellier versus Clermont. The Derby du Nord is the five o'clock game on Sunday. And then the final match of the round has Stade Rene versus Paris Saint-Germain. JJ, some big games coming up. What's what's tickling your fancy in round eight? You know what? I'm a bit uh, split. Obviously, I think uh, PSG at Rennes uh, will jump out to a lot of people. But you've also got the Balogun derby between Haas and uh, Monaco. So that one could be could be interesting as well, but it's difficult to see past Rennes versus PSG. You know, generally one of the the sort of heavyweight clashes uh, in Ligue 1. And to be honest, I had that one down as the one that PSG would struggle in uh, in this run of away games instead of Clermont. But like I was saying earlier, PSG generally tend to deliver their better performances against the bigger sides. So who knows? Perhaps we'll see them. Uh, you know. Uh, finally get uh, a positive result against a team that's become something of, uh, you know, a bogey side for them in recent years because Rennes, uh, you know, have shown them up, you know, a number of times in the league over the last couple of years. And traditionally since the beginning of the QSI era, in fact, I think have been PSG's toughest domestic opponents. Rennes uh, are a bogey side. Maybe they don't like dominant forces. They were always Olympic uh, Lyonnais bogey side in that in that run of Lyon between 2002 and 2008 if anyone was going to beat them it was it was going to be Ren back then as well Baptiste what uh what catches your eye in round 8 I mean all the ones that has Jonathan has mentioned obviously Ren Ren PSG it's always a tantalizing look at whether Ren could you know push on and be and be a real challenger to the top 3 so I'm always intrigued by that and they played really well last season but I'm a slight glutton for punishment, and uh, Lyon versus Lorient, I think, has just a lot of intriguing uh, aspects to it. Because I think, obviously, we've talked about uh, Lyon, but Lorient have been a bit hit and miss this season in in uh, Lebris' second season, and he's been given a lot of power. So he's a very, you know, there's there's a potential for it to be similar to Julien Stéphane's second season at, at Strasbourg. Which I'm hoping not, because I'm I'm very impressed by Lebris, but it's it's going to be quite tense because both sides are a little bit, um, you know, are not at the happiest of times at the moment. And uh, and as Jonathan says in the chat, it's it's the return of Romain Fevre, who seems to enjoy Brittany, and but not Lyon. So I'm sure he'll be out to impress. The 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 terrible Julien Stéphane second season syndrome. Uh, which has just been captured there. What was his second season at Rennes like? Was it second or third season syndrome at Rennes? His second full season. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he came. He came in midway through a season. Yeah, I think. that's right. Yeah, mm. Andreas, what uh, 
what do you think is going to happen and, and what, what tickles your fancy? I, yeah, I, I agree with Baptiste after all we're talking about with Lyon. I mean, what formation are they going to play? Because Grosso's picked had two completely different formations in the two matches that I've seen. So, you know, sooner or later, probably sooner, he's going to have to decide where he wants to go through there. And I think Leon need their big players like Tagliafico and these guys to really kind of stand up to the plate. Because again, against Rans, they they lacked a bit of fight for me. So I'm really interested to see how Leon do. And and yeah, Rans Monaco because you know two teams doing really well. And I think. Um, Will still took over after Rans lost against Monaco last year. I seem to remember a really, a, a really unfair uh, red card for a Rans player. I can't remember who it was, but uh, Oscar Garcia got fired right after that. So I think um, Will still is in his job, not because of that match, but that was the kind of catalyst, wasn't it? When Monaco went and beat Rans, Rans, uh, Rans sorry, three 0 last year. And it was, um, you know, what's it the French would say? And bien pour and mal. You know, they they fired their coach and they ended up with Will Still. So um, that'll be a, a that could be a really interesting and entertaining one as well. Two teams playing some good football. We've already heard uh, the big preview for Lens versus Lille, but just very quickly, gentlemen, Andreas, sticking with you. In a word, Lens versus Lille. Who wins? I'll go for Lille. I think Lens might, might be a bit uh, exhausted after some after their European adventures. Though Lille have got a long long trip as well, but, but it might just take a bit less out of them emotionally than a Champions League match. So I close, but I'll just about go for Lille. Baptiste, I'm going to go for Lens. I think they've they're on a good positive dynamic, and intrigued to see uh, Eli Wahi push on as well. And he's a real he's a real talent in that in that derby. It was a fantastic goal he scored on the weekend. His first uh, for Lens, the the cut back onto the onto the left foot and rifling it into the bottom corner from the edge of the box. Not to put ideas in your head, JJ, but but what do you think is going to happen in the Derby du Nord? As much as I'm tempted to join Baptiste uh, in calling a Lens victory, I actually think I'm going to go between Baptiste and Andreas, and I'm going to go for a draw. Uh, I would love to think that Lens get through the week uh, unbeaten, so fingers crossed for them in the the Champions League game against Arsenal. But I think that trip is going to take uh, the trip to the Faroe Islands is going to take a lot out of um, Lille. So yeah, I'm going to say draw is a good shout. Wouldn't be stunned if Lens won it though. All right, fantastic gentlemen. You are listening to Jonathan Johnson, Baptiste Reno, Andreas Evagora, and myself, Robbie Thompson on Le Beaujeu. We will be back. In two weeks' time, there we will be back in the middle of the international break because there's only one round coming up of Ligue 1 football before it's Les Bleus, who take centre stage yet again, looking to qualify for Euro 2024. They take on the Netherlands, and then they have a friendly against Scotland as well. Another chance, perhaps, for the Paris Saint-Germain front three, or at least uh, what many people envisage being the front three for Les Bleus in years to come to uh, strut their stuff, but we'll uh, have to wait and see how that goes. We don't have any more time, unfortunately. It's uh, it's another monster episode of Le Beau Jeu. Don't forget to join the conversation on Twitter or X, as it's known, at League One underscore ENG. Find us on all your favourite podcast platforms. Like and subscribe. Tell your mates all about it. It's the one place you can hear the experts talking about league and football. And of course, then we will be back in two weeks' time with a full preview of the Olympico. What a match that could be for all the wrong reasons coming up 
in a couple of weeks' time, Marseille versus Lyon. I can't even imagine how, how, how full-on and dangerous that could be for one of those two sides, particularly Olympic Lyonnais at the moment, who could be rock bottom of the league after eight games. JJ, thank you for joining us. Baptiste as well. Andreas, a pleasure as always. Thank you at home for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks' time for the next episode of Le Bourgeois. Bye-bye.